Hello, I'm Jonathan Smith. I'm the lead pastor at One Church TO, and you're listening to the teaching time from our weekend gathering. We're an imperfect community of over 70 nationalities and five generations who are attempting to follow and shine Jesus in the greater Toronto area. Our vision, it's so simple. We want to help people from all walks of life know God, love people, and in turn, impact our city for good. We've designed these weekends to be meaningful, challenging, and encouraging, and I hope that's what you get from listening. Good morning, One Church. All right, it's good to be here. Again, my name is Jesse. It's an honor to be able to share with you all today. Uh, Dan introduced me as uh, someone who must know Dr. Van Johnson. We've never met before, so it's a little bit awkward. My name is Jesse. Nice to meet you. Okay, we're good. All right. It's okay, I know Dan well for a very long time. So anyways, um, I'm really privileged to be able to share about this passage. And this passage is something that uh, I have been working with, actually, a small group of people in this church, uh, a little group uh, that's been trying to work through what community engagement looks like. And I've been here, actually, since the fall, kind of working with a class and figuring out how to get the pulse of the city. And we'll do more about that today, but I just want to... I just want to continue on this message to the rest of the church. Um, I'm someone who uh, loved as a kid to be able to travel uh, with my parents all throughout the states in a car. And for the first time in uh, December, in the Christmas break, I brought me and my family. I have three little kids, 10, 8, and 5-year-old. I went together with my family to go on a trip to Florida. And if you've ever been on a trip to Florida and you've ever driven down to Florida you will only see Waffle Houses, McDonald's, and any kind of hamburger kind of joint. And so in the beginning, it was so great because all we could eat was McDonald's and my wife does not let us eat McDonald's. So for me, it was a joy. I'm like, let's go, Chicken McNuggets, Big Macs. But after a few days, um, McDonald's became a little bit mundane and we became kind of sick of it. Even the kids got sick of it. And all I desired was like to go back to Toronto and eat some pho, you know, get some Jolly Bee, you know, uh, get some Cha Time bubble tea. I wanted something different, you know, something Toronto that reflects the culture that we have here, which is a multicultural kind of environment. And it's something that I grew up in. I grew up in North York, Toronto, all my life. That's where I was all my time. So it's just, it's just natural for me to be able to engage with uh, a multicultural environment and to have all sorts of different types of food to be able to engage. And the thing that I want to start with, the reason why I'm sharing that is that in the book of Acts, in the Acts 6, and in the beginning, in the early church, you have to understand how novel it was, how unusual it was to be able to have cross-cultural engagement. You know, right now we have naturalized the idea of what it is to engage with different cultures. But at that time, to actually engage with a Gentile, as a Jew, a a non-Jewish people was quite suspect. You're not even allowed to step into their house, which you'll discover more as you go through Acts in Peter and Cornelius. You want to engage with a Samaritan who's actually part Jewish, right? And so the Jewish people at that time, we have to see, as I set up the context of this text that we're going to move into, you have to realize that when they are thinking about spreading the message of the gospel to all nations, you know, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth, in the minds of the disciples, they can maybe conceptually understand, but practically, the outworking of that, they had no idea. There's no set plan. There's no five-year plan of how we're going to hit up all of these different 
circles of different cultures. They have no conception of that. They're just a bunch of disciples from Galilee, and their circle is very limited. All they eat is one kind of food, and all the people they engage with is one type of people. They all share a narrative. They all know the story of Moses. They, know, they all share all those things in common. So then when you actually get to the text in Acts, you are basically watching a bunch of people trying to figure out what it means for the gospel to be spread to the Gentile people. And actually, if you read Acts and you read a bunch of epistles, you will realize that them... A lot of the conflicts and a lot of the struggles had to do with the cultural barriers that they were coming up against. And the fact that they could not conceive of a Gentile who's a non-Jew to be incorporated or to be engrafted into their chosen people. Like imagine if you're a Jew who has been persecuted for all your life, you've gone through all of that, and you are considered a chosen people, a descendant of Abraham, and then you're thinking to yourself, okay, we're going to share the message of the gospel to all nations, but, but now i got to, like, share this blessing, this chosenness. Like, how chosen are we if we have to spread it to a bunch of people who don't follow our customs? So you can imagine the difficulty of an altar call in the first century where they would go to the Gentile people and say, who would like to accept Jesus into your life? And some would say yes, and they would, you know, they would accept to follow Christ. And the automatic response that you would think as a Jew is to say, let's go to the back room. And we have this thing called circumcision. This is just another thing. It's an easy thing. Don't worry. We're just going to do a little snip snip. This is just how we do it, right? If you want to be a part of our people, it's a little bit of that, you know, and you can't eat everything you want to eat anymore. And for a Gentile, let me tell you, that's not a seeker sensitive type of message. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's a lot of sacrifice to be able to get that kind of... Um, surgical kind of aspect of that. So I think if I am the first century and if I am those disciples, I have, I'm like, okay, Jesus, what do I do here? And what we get to in this moment right here in Acts 6 is one of the first cultural kind of conflicts that occur between not even a non-Jew. Okay, when we get to this text, let's go here to Acts 6 verse 1. It says, around that time, as the number of disciples increased, okay, so they begin to scale, all right? They're beginning to uh, get a little bit beyond just the family circle. It begins to get a little bit out of control, and the message of the gospel is spreading. And in a way, they cannot contain it. As it began to increase, the Hellenists, I'll describe this in a moment, raised a dispute with the Hebrew, Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the 12 gathered, so the 12 told the whole crowd of disciples together. So this is the beginning scene where you have Hellenistic Jews and Hebraic Jews, all right? I want to just talk about the difference between that. Because if you're a Hebrew Jew, you got to imagine, I guess the best example for me that I have in my head is I'm a, I'm a second-gen Indonesian, all right? Any Indonesians here? No? No? Okay. Um, I'm a second-gen Indonesian. My parents are first-gen. So Indonesian culture is something that is a bit distant for me. If I try to talk Indonesian, everyone just laughs at me, so I don't. So I blame my mom for discouraging me because all they do is laugh at me when I do that. Indonesian food, like I happen to marry a Korean, so all I eat is kimchi and, you know, pugogi. Like that's all I eat right now. I don't eat my Indonesian food. I have 
acculturated myself into a Toronto environment, and Toronto is kind of my culture. What you got to imagine is a Hellenist Jew is someone who has like ingrained themselves into the Greek culture. Hellenistic culture is a Greek culture. So perhaps what they wear, perhaps what they do, even though they are Jewish, they do manifest culturally in a Greek way. They're not as traditional, like old school kind of Hebrew way of Judaism, right? And so this is the expansion of the kingdom of God. It began with Hebraic Jews, people from Galilee who follow a very traditional way of seeing the faith. And I want you to think about this for a moment, that the early Christians they were kind of like a, a Jewish sect, right? They didn't call themselves Christian yet. It wasn't branded in this new form, like this new thing. If you were in the first century in this time right now around Acts 6, all Christians were basically Jewish, all right? Everyone was Jewish. So, and, and if you were to look at it, just imagine if it was like a, a, a cult of Christianity right now for a moment. If you see a cult, it's like a deviance, like, right? At that time, if you were a mainstream Jewish person, you would have saw these people following Jesus and you'd be like, this is like some cult, you know, like this is like, like some Jewish sect branching out. They would have thought it was very unusual of what was happening here, of the, them thinking that the Messiah was there. So this is how small they were, like they were a Jewish sect trying to figure out their way. And now the first conflict that occurs out of this little Jewish sect is that Hellenist and Hebrew Hebraic Christian, uh, Jews became Christians, and now they're mingling it amongst each other. But if any of you guys know, when you are the majority, the Hebraic Jews probably represented the majority of the Christians, there was, without maybe knowing, maybe it was intentional, maybe it wasn't intentional, but there was an overlooking of the people. There was an overlooking. It says this um, in this passage, it says the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food, right? I want to key on that word overlooked. When you think about overlooked, you have to imagine sometimes it's not intentional, right? Like my wife and I, like we talk and sometimes we get into arguments and fights and I just say all the time, like all you men, it wasn't my intention, you know, to do this. But my wife is a psychologist. <laughs> Jesse, there's a difference between intention and impact, okay? See, impact, it doesn't matter what your intention is because if it impacts me a certain way, it doesn't matter what your intentions is. It's how I feel about it. I go berserk when those conversations happen, right? Because I'm like, no, 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 it's clear. If my intention was fine, then, you know, it should be okay. But no, there's a difference, right? There's a difference. Even though you intend to do good, maybe you're intending to feed as many people as you can, but guess what? Maybe there was a preference towards the Hebraic Jews intentionally or intentionally, but there was some kind of discriminating happening in the distribution of food. They were being overlooked. When I think of overlooked, I kind of think unintentional. But they're overlooked. And let me tell you, when you're at a church and you're beginning to scale and you're beginning to grow, there is a tendency to overlook things, right? We begin to overlook certain things that we didn't intentionally want to do. There's a tendency to form our practices around the majority and those who are more and most like us, right? There's just a tendency, even if you don't try to, and that's what was happening in this situation. The Hellenistic Jews were being overlooked in this distribution of food. And you know, I think to myself, when we look at our current day, 
and we look at the way in which we practice, there's like what we consider normal and the majority of what people like. And we tend to do our structures of how we do church based on all able people who can maybe walk and who can hear and who can see. But how much of the church allows and creates an open space for people who don't naturally fit into the, to the normalcy of the, of the broad community? How much of us actually create structures in which people who are on the margins of society would actually be able to feel like this is home? That's an important point. I remember a friend of mine who, who, who's in a wheelchair, who writes frequently, and I always see his Facebook post about the fact that he's, he takes this picture of a ledge that goes into a restaurant, and, and he looks at that ledge. We look at that ledge going into a restaurant on a downtown street corner, and we say, whatever, and you just walk into that store, and it's just nothing to you, right? For most of us, it's like that. But for him, in his as a disabled person, he goes up to that place, and that's, to us, is just two inches off the ground. To him, it's 10 feet off the ground, right? Because that is like a complete barrier that does not allow him to enter a space. You have to go through all of these different things to actually let him in there, right? And the thing about the body of Christ that I think is good that is that we are able in our theology to allow for the understanding of how we can allow our space to be a welcoming space for those who are on the margins of society. We are set up through our theology of grace. We are set up to be a people who didn't just stick with our own culture but branched out and in Acts, basically, like if you ever see a tool, you know, like wedging, a wedge, like if you have like a little tight corner that you're trying to open up more, I just imagine acts kind of just wedging our way, opening, opening, opening up from just the Jewish sect all the way into the Hellenistic Jews, eventually to the Samaritans, eventually to people of different culture like Cornelius, who was a, who was a, a Roman person, and then eventually Paul goes to Athens and speaks the message of the gospel to people who have no shared narrative of what it means to actually engage in any story of Moses and any of these things, okay? And that's the story of it. And so we have a church that is built, and the whole church was built upon this idea of what it is to be an inclusive environment where people can come in this. I, I'm currently, right now, we're starting a food bank uh, at my church personally, and you guys have been skilled in doing this for a long time. I have all the people that I've met who did the food bank here. I got to champion you all for doing such great work. And the thing that I'm realizing as we're starting this food bank is that we come up against a lot of different questions that come up. And usually if you think about a food bank, there's going to be different people who enter the space. People that maybe we don't know where their background is coming from. We don't know the type of risk that is involved in that kind of uh, in this kind of type of ministry. And I realized without noticing, as we were thinking about the policies and the procedures and the ways in which we're going to orient our space, automatically the things in our mind is risk mitigation. That's like pronounced in our mind of how are we going to make sure that our, our cameras are secure, our laptops that we leave out in the sanctuary. We're thinking about all the locked doors. We're thinking about everything to be able to make the space a, a, a little bit different. And even sometimes there's thoughts even thoughts of like, is this, is this worth it? Like, should we do this ministry? But here's the thing. What I notice in this example 
as you'll see right now in their application, as they received and understood that they were overlooking the Hellenistic Jews, the, the Hellenistic widows in particular, the church leadership did something about it. They listened enough, they heard enough, and they said, we need to do something about this because there's a problem going on with this. And I realized for a moment sometimes is that sometimes we can value our, our tech equipment, we can value the different space that we have to be able to create a, a clean environment for our space. But we have to know that when we work with those on the margins, when you have to work with people of different type of risk levels and all that stuff, we need to be a church in a way able to be dirty enough. We need to be a church that bakes in losses when perhaps a camera is stolen or whatever. When you get into the ministry of those in the margins, you have to bake it in your cost. You got to bake it in your understanding that not everything is going to be neat and tidy. You have to accept the fact that if Christ lived this messy life of engaging and getting in the mess of all these different things, as a church, we cannot be too clean. We cannot be too clean. We cannot fear things being taken from us. We cannot fear the security always of all these things because it's baked in our life as disciples to put ourselves in the front line, to be in places where others won't be, right? And so for us, it's important for us to understand. Did you know that in the, in the, er, in the not in the early church, but later in, 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 in the 300 ADs, there was the emperor Julian, Emperor Julian, who was looking upon, this is way back, looking upon this budding kind of movement of a Christian movement growing up, and, and the thing that they could, he could identify Christians with, he didn't identify the Christians based on how good their services are or how good they stream online. They didn't judge it based on all of the aesthetics of the church. What he said is this. He thought for a moment, when he looked at it, he saw that we were identified for our engagement with the poor. He identified as someone who was actually against Christianity. He says, these Christians, what are they doing over here? They're, they're, they're serving our poor better than we are serving our poor, actually. And he was saying, they're disgracing us that, that these people would actually be uh, supporting our poor better than we have. And he said, there's something about these Christians did you know that Christian uh, archaeology, they would say that there was always like an extra room and a mattress that was set aside because Christians always have in their mentality, in the early church, they always had in their mentality of what it is to be, you know, inconvenienced upon. And the question is, how can we be a people and a body of Christ that can be inconvenienced and so I think it's important for us that at this first point of being overlooked of those on the margins, the church policy, the church structure, let's go to the next verse. It says this. It says, the, so the 12 in verse two, 2, so the 12 gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Let me get to that term in a moment. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit of wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. I'm realizing it's a different translation probably. But in this situation, what the 12 disciples, what the disciples decided, the apostles decided, is that they needed to do the ministry of the word. And so they said, we need to set, we need to delegate over here. And this is actually considered the text for creating the first deacons, all right? I want you to see this for a moment. 
the reason of the, 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 the stimulus of what made church governance change in the early church, it wasn't a debate about free will and predestination. It wasn't a debate about tongues, you know what I'm saying? It wasn't a debate about all these different theological things. The actual thing that stimulated church policy and governance change was them realizing they were overlooking those on the margins, right? That they were looking a, overlooking a particular kind of uh, widow in their congregation. That's important, all right? If anyone thinks that compassion and justice ministry is not part of the ministry of the church, it was so part of the ministry of the church, so baked, that it actually made the disciples think, we got to do this leadership structural change here. And what they did is they ended up getting these particular deacons. And I, this is very interesting, these particular deacons over here. Because what are the qualifications, actually? Because when you see the qualifications they give for these deacons, who... When it looks like a, like a derogatory kind of way of saying it. It's like, we need to preach the word. We don't need to wait on tables. But actually, I don't know if they saw it as like a, a, a small task endeavor, all right? And I'll tell you why here for a moment. But like, you, you would normally think when you read this text, it's like, okay, really? The real stuff is the pro proclamation of the word. But this waiting on table stuff, let's just get a bunch of volunteers to be able to do this and let's just make that happen. But actually, what you see over here, what's interesting is that actually... They, um, in verse 3, let me read it from here. In verse 3, yeah, brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among yourselves who are well spoken of and filled with the spirit and wisdom. Let's stop there. If I, I ran a, a drop-in center called uh, Evergreen Center for Street Youth, and I would have volunteers coming all the time to be able to engage. And usually I wouldn't think that my qualifications, if I were to do a job description of who's going to wait on tables and serve the food, my natural inclination is not to think about someone who is like, are you filled with the spirit here? You know, are you, uh, are you wise? Um, because this serving of the food is going to require you to be filled with the spirit, right? Let's do the fill of the spirit text, uh, test here. Let's, let's do it. I would normally not think that's my... My criteria, but listen to this. The criteria to wait on tables is to be filled with the Spirit. Usually, you know, I grew up in a charismatic background, okay, so I'm used to like prayer tunnels. I'm used to like yelling of prayers all around me. I'm used to flags everywhere, and that's good. I love those things, all right? But let me tell you, being filled with the Spirit is not just to prophesy. To be filled with the Spirit is not just tongues. To fill of the Spirit is not just you are now a part of the intercessory prayer team. No, that's not the only things that the filled with the Spirit is. Actually, if you see a criteria and you match the job description with the job, to be filled with the Spirit involves different things that might seem mundane. It actually might, you need to be filled with the Spirit to engage in this kind of compassion justice ministry in the margins. Because if you've ever worked in the front lines, if you've ever worked in a soup kitchen or if you've ever worked in a drop-in center or a shelter, you would know the need for the filling of the Spirit to be in those moments. Holy Spirit empowerment ain't just for healing the sick. Holy Spirit empowerment could be something you need to be able to sit beside someone in a hospital who is sick, right? Who's going through a healing process. You need the filling of the Holy Spirit to do that, right? Holy Spirit empowerment is not just for us to utter these prophetic words. Sometimes the spirit empowerment, we need that spirit empowerment to just shut up, right? And just stay silent, 
right? And to allow our silence and our listening ear to be a power in the exchange between someone who needs to be heard. The spirit empowerment isn't just something that we do about multiplying the bread and the fish and to do all these miracles. Sometimes the Holy Spirit empowerment is about sharing a meal with someone who is lonely in our community. Those things require Holy Spirit empowerment. How you manifest that spirit might not be so charismatic, but those signs and what you need to be able to do that and the kind of fortitude and the perseverance and develops into you is significant. Do you know my, my experience in working with homeless youth in particular for eight years in Evergreen, when I engage in those kind of relationships, I, I am challenged like no other in, in, in being able to grant grace in moments when I feel like a youth is like playing me for like tokens to go on uh, the TTC or someone is like lying to me on this side. There's a lot of beauty in that drop-in center that I can talk about, but there's a lot of moments where I feel, Holy Spirit, I need your power right now to be able to have the patience, to be able to have the fortitude, to stick with it, to be able to look at someone and say, this person is impossible to be able to come to the Lord. This person's a lost cause. I need the Holy Spirit to tell me, no, there's hope in this person, right? That there's something that can happen with this person, even though my eyes can't see it and they're over uh, in, in, in addictions and in fentanyl and all these different things, I can see it time and time again, my mind saying, nah, this is not possible. And I feel like the spirit just reminding me, no, you gotta believe that if I chased you down, right? That if I didn't give, hope, give up hope on you and I continue to pursue you by my grace, wave after wave after wave, you gotta know that grace can come from you as well to those around you. And this person, ain't, they ain't gonna see necessarily that grace through this invisible stuff. Sometimes they need to see it embodied in the body of Christ. A body of Christ who can time and time again, even people can be difficult, we can stay firm and have the patience to withstand all of those things that can usually in our social sector today normally sometimes can't handle all the different things and all the different risks that are involved in all these things. So they chose people, and actually just want to point out here that they chose these seven men, and these seven men, guess what? If you look at the names of these seven men, let's see the, the names in verse 5. In verse 5, it says, the whole group gathered was pleased with what they said, and they chose these people. And I'm, gonna, I'm not going to list them all, but two people I'm going to point out to is Stephen and Philip. But all these other names, I want you to see one thing, all of those names are Hellenistic names. They're all Greek names, meaning that the people that they chose to lead, the people that they chose to be the deacons was from the margins, was from the people in their group that was being marginalized and put it out on the outside and being overlooked. And these seven men became the people who actually were to be the people to wait on tables, all right? And so we see in this situation, we knew, of the, they, they particularly, if you look at these people, out of anyone, these are the people who knows what it feels like to be on the margins. And I think there's something significant in any kind of leadership type of development we do in this church or others. It's important to know that we can't just have people who are always have everything set and, and everything is stable in their life. It's good to have people involved who have been in the struggle, right? You know, how many times I, I said to this group, the group that we had our, our, 
our, our group of, of, of learning about this in the fall. I said, how many times do you hear a testimony come out where someone shares a testimony and they're going through a struggle and they just end it saying, and I'm still in the struggle? Can you help me? Can you pray for me? Because usually I hear testimonies of like, Jesus is good, he healed me and everything. I always hear a happy ending to a story in a testimony. But actually when you hear moments of lament up here, of sadness and sorrow from the margins, and you actually, they communicate, there's something about that that brings us all together in a unique way. You know, I don't always feel like the miracle always happens to me. You know what I'm saying? And if only examples are up here are success, success stories, and you know what? That's hard sometimes. If all the songs that we sing are songs that have to do with praise God, God is always good, all that kind of stuff, do you know there's this book called Lamentations, right? There's, like, there's stuff in the Bible that just says sorrow stuff, you know, like, and it's just hard. Sometimes there's songs that just sing songs of sorrow, and like, we just got to get those things out. There is no sometimes happy ending in every worship song, right? We need to allow for that, and I believe whether... Whether intentional or not, the people chose these individuals who came from the struggle, perhaps, and they're the ones who actually began to lead. And let me tell you, they led, all right? And they led in ways that went beyond, I think, the minds of the apostles. Because when you look at these two particular individuals of Stephen and Philip, if you ever want to try to figure out how to break into the Gentile world, or you're trying to figure out how to expand this little Jewish sect out of Jerusalem and go into Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth, you know who you go to? And you know who actually led the charge? Not so much the apostles. The apostles, they thought themselves, you're going to preach the word, and you're going to, <laughs> you're going to wait on tables. Guess what? These people who are in the margins, these people who are actually the ones feeling the struggle, they get to work. They start waiting on tables. And what happens? Who knows what happens to Stephen? Who's my, come on, my Bible quiz people here. Stephen, the next chapter, what we see is Stephen goes, what is he, end, what is he known for in the end of the day? Is he known for waiting on tables? No, he's known as the first martyr in the early church, right? The first martyr who was what? Proclaiming the word of God, right? Oftentimes, we do a dichotomy, a, a, a juxtaposition between the preaching of the word, the proclamation of the word, and the demonstration of the words or deeds, you know, word and deed. How much of the gospel is word? How much of the gospel is deed? Oh, I don't like that social gospel of us doing all that charity work. Guess what? In the eyes of these people, they didn't make those dichotomies, right? In their minds, we need to be where Jesus is. That song that we say, follow Jesus, we follow Jesus and we go to the margins, we go to these places, and as we are there doing the work of action and deed, guess what can't help come out, right? It's the proclamation of the word, right? It's the proclamation of the word that was just brought together. And it wasn't just a proclamation of the word to anyone. It was a proclamation of the word to people who probably wouldn't have heard it because those are the people who are beginning to be outside of the inner Jewish circle. If you look at Acts 1 to Acts 6, all of the sermons that Peter gives and all these disciples give, if you look at the sermons, they all have reference to the Old Testament. They all have like, oh, you know Moses, you know, you know David, right? And he references those, which indicates he was in synagogues sharing to Jews. But what do you see after Stephen? You see this guy, Philip. He's one of these guys. He's one of these Hellenistic Jews. Philip, after Stephen is martyred, 
The church doesn't have this like, okay, this, we're going to create satellite sites in different places and expand in our church growth model. They're not thinking that. In the, it, Stephen is martyred, and as a result, the church scatters out of fear, right? They're fearing for their life, and the church scatters and goes into these places. Providentially, God situates people in different places. And where does Philip end up? Some of you guys are like, I have no idea what Jesse's talking about. But for Philip, when you look later on in this text, Philip ends up in where? In Samaria. Does that sound familiar? Does it sound familiar? Because Jesus engages with a lot of people who are Samaritans. We have this idea of the good Samaritan. And, and if you didn't know already, Jews and Samaritans, they don't align well. There's a hostility between them. They are feeling enemy. Samaritans are part Jewish, but there was, a, there was a hostility between them. And what we find in this text over here is Philip goes, imagine, remember, they're not used to multiculturalism. They're not used to crossing, crossing cultures. It's so taboo for Jesus to engage with the Samaritan woman at the well. It's so taboo for the good Samaritan to actually be the model of that story. It's so taboo to engage with Samaritans. But Philip, Philip, who knows what it is, perhaps, to be on the margins, to not be a part of the, the, the holy huddle in the, in the middle of the core, he knows what it is. He goes into that context, and revival breaks out in Samaria. Not only that, after Samaria, he goes and meets an Ethiopian eunuch on the road. See, the biggest evangelists that come out of this place are people who, in, who, who know what it is to expand. And if there's one thing I get from this message, if there's one thing I'm picking up from even the songs that we're singing over here, is that the kingdom of God is bigger than we think. That if you think that we have to share a political type of understanding of this world to be together, let me tell you, the hostility between Jews and Gentiles, way more than if you are a conservative or a liberal. Way more, way more taboo to be able to, to cross those boundaries of cultural difference, right? When you look at the differences that we have even theologically with other people, when we allow those things to divide us, when the whole mission of that early church was to bring and bring people of difference into it, you got to think how ridiculous that is, right? How ridiculous that we allow these small little things to divide us. You know, there's a difference. There's a difference between the appearance and the aesthetic of tolerance and, in and inclusion and a real community-based messy kind of unity, right? The body of Christ exists because we can allow people of difference, all these different things, to be in one place together and say that we share the blood of Jesus, we are the body of Christ, and no matter how kind of variances that we have on these different issues, God has knitted us together. He has engrafted us into the vine. He's grafted, he's made us into one. There is nothing like this in the world. No other religion in the world that actually promotes this kind of intertwined kind of relationship that we are one. The same kind of language of us being one as husband and wife. It's the oneness of the church. So when we go and we talk about another church or we talk about this and we criticize all there, which by the way I do all the time, when, when we do those types of things and we, we divide amongst ourselves, what is that for, Right? We need to understand that we are a community of God. And if there's one thing we want to do as I close this message is the whole purpose of me coming here is talking about what it is to engage our community. And if you can imagine someone in the community who's on the road 
asking for change, or if you see someone in addiction, or you see someone not even on the road, it could be in your family, the the black sheep of the family, and you're imagining like, how is it conceivable that these people can be engrafted into the family of God? How can we see no difference between the people who come to the food bank and the people of God here? How can we see everyone as a part of the church? How can we say it's your space just as much as it's our space? Who comes on a Tuesday night, right? There's a beauty for us when we open the doors. It might be scary. It might be risky. It might allow for some messiness and confusion. But that's the body of Christ. The body of Christ doesn't have those solid walls. We allow ourselves to be able to see that even though our inclination is to just stick to the majority and stick to what is normal, let us be a people of God to see those on the margins of society, see the people who are on the outskirts and allow them to be in the core. Allow them to occupy space up here. Allow them to occupy places on your board. Allow them to occupy spaces in your staff. Allow them to occupy all different places because if you only have the people who are like neat and tidy and who know how to talk, guess what? It's just an image. It's just a mirage because we're all broken people and we need to actually show what that reality is to be an authentic community, right? So Lord, we come to you today, Father. We know, Father, it is not an easy task, Lord Jesus, to be able to be a community that welcomes those on the margins of society, to be able to wrestle with power dynamics and, and all the risks, Lord, involved with that kind of ministry, Lord. But I pray you open our eyes, Lord Jesus, to the type of life you live, Lord God. Help the church and how we are as a church. Let it look like Jesus and who you hung out with and who you were engaged with. Help us to examine our budgets, Lord God. Help us to examine, Lord Jesus, the time we spend, Father, on certain ministries over others, Lord. Help us to look at all those things and see the proportion, Father, of the amount of time you spent engaging with those, Father, who those other people would not engage with. Help us as a church, Lord. Help all of us as individuals, not only as a church, as individuals to monitor the ratio of our life devoted to those of normalcy and those of the majority and those that we would all inclined to be with. People who where we invite into our home will invite us back. Lord, open our eyes, Lord, to the possibility of asymmetrical relationships, Lord, where people don't always pay us back, Lord. Where people don't always ask us to come back, Lord, into their life, Lord Jesus, and invite us into their homes, Father. Help us to be a generous, radical body of Christ, Lord God, that actually honors you through the way that we live, Lord Jesus. And Lord, I ask one last thing, God, fill us with your spirit, Lord God. Fill us with the Spirit and help us to see the ordinary moments that we are in as necessitating your Spirit, Lord God. Fill us right now, Lord, so that we can know what it means, Father, to engage the most difficult people in this world, Lord Jesus. And help us to know that we can gain so much from that. We surrender to you, Father, and ask this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you found this helpful, we hope you join us at one of our campuses if you're in the GTA for a weekend gathering. If you're listening from somewhere else in the world, we'd encourage you to join us at onechurch.to slash live.
We believe everyone can be a part of what Jesus is doing, both in our community and in our city. So if you'd like to connect with us at a deeper level, visit us at onechurch.to slash next steps. See you next time. Thank you.